This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Personally, feeling a little more Christmassy, in part because I was working on booking guests for the podcast while on evacuation from Hurricane Ida. And now I'm talking to people about Christmas music again. I'm also feeling the mood because we've had a cold front pass through New Orleans, seemingly the first in months. It hasn't actually been cold, but it has been less relentlessly hot. The days are starting to take on a more autumnal shape. The cooler mornings and nights on either side of days that still peak in the 80s, but for a few hours in the middle of the day, not all day. This may not be the weather that signals the changing of the seasons in other parts of the country, but for me, here, it's a sign that easier weather is on the way. This week on the show, I'm talking to Dan and Claudia Zanes, the world met Dan Zanes as a member of the rock band The Del Fuegos, but for the last 20 plus year, he has made family-friendly music his calling card, whether on his own, with musical guests, or with his wife, Claudia. In 2013, he recorded the Christmas EP, Christmas in Concord, and in a few minutes we'll talk about that and his And in a few minutes we'll talk about that and their new album, Let Love Be Your Guide. First though, I'm excited to announce a change to the podcast. When I first started planning 12 songs, I envisioned singer Alexandra Scott as my co-host. I've known Alexandra since the early 2000s when I was music editor at Gambit, New Orleans Alt Weekly. We met once uh, for lunch. We met once for lunch for an interview about one of her projects, and enjoyed it so much that we met regularly after that to talk shop and chew on music we were listening to, even though there was no story connected. I thought she'd have interesting takes on Christmas music, and as a singer, she'd have a perspective I don't have. At the time, she had too much on her plate to commit to a weekly podcast, and then she moved to Virginia. But while there, we were finally able to meet online, and last year, we recorded an episode tracing the recorded history of Dolly Parton's Hard Candy Christmas, and had a great time doing it. She joined the panel last week to discuss the many versions of Santa Baby, and I'm glad that she will now become a regular part of the show. Rather than me take a few minutes to tell you about a song or some songs that I like, Alexander and I are going to talk about them. I think that's going to be more fun and more dynamic and will lead to observations I wouldn't reach on my own. This week, we're talking about Christmas music by Kelly Clarkson. Her new song, Christmas Isn't Cancelled, Just You, and her biggest Christmas song to date, Underneath the Tree. Let's go to that conversation. Then we'll be back on the other side with me and Ben Jaffe from the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. So first off, Alexandra, it is so good to have you be a become a regular contributor and a regular part of this podcast. I'm really excited. Uh, Thanks for having me. You know, this is what I envisioned from the start. I actually, you know, we, when I first started the podcast, I wanted to have you be a part of it because I thought I'd, if there's anyone who I would love to talk about Christmas music with, that it would be you. Because I talked to you, because I talked to you about lots of music, Christmas, and so I, and I figured you'd be someone who would have cool takes on Christmas music. Well, I, you were right all along, and I, I'm happy to uh, admit that publicly and and join belatedly. Excellent. So we're going to start today with Kelly Clarkson. And Kelly Clarkson has just released uh, late last week a new Christmas track 
titled Christmas Isn't Cancelled, Just You, which is the first release uh, from her upcoming album, When Christmas Comes Around, which is coming out October 15th. This is going to be, this is her second Christmas album. In 2013, she released Wrapped in Red. And the new one includes three songs that she released last year, including a cover of Vince Vance and the Valiants, All I Want for Christmas is You, which is not the same song as the Mariah song by the same name. So uh, <laughs> I, the first time I, when I, when I heard at one point, I saw like, Vince Vance and the Valiants wrote uh, All I Want for Christmas is You. That's amazing. And, and then I discovered they were different songs. And, but Vince Vance is from New Orleans, so I care about these things. Right. Um, I, I was excited to hear that. But anyway, but let's start with Christmas isn't canceled, just you. What's your take on it? Well, I, I don't, I don't, I want to be not negative, um, but that leaves me with not a lot to say. Um, like I, I hate to start my, my tenure on this podcast being unkind, but I don't like it. Oh, really? No, <laughs> I really don't like it. Wow. Um, because, um, well, I I mean, I play music because I grew up singing with my family and singing at school, and I like I grew up singing, uh, which and so I and caroling was a part of that. Um, and so I am of the distinctly old-fashioned belief, because I, I can see that this is dying out, that Christmas music should be singable. Like all the great historical Christmas songs, you can sing them. I couldn't sing, I mean, I could sing you bits of Christmas Isn't Cancelled, because I'm a trained singer and I have some memory for that, but only because I was paying attention. Like it's not... It's just, it's not, it's a performative song. It shows off her big voice, which is, you know, a beautiful voice, but I can't remember any of the lyrics. um, And I always remember lyrics. Um, I can't sing anything except for the last line of the chorus. Um, It's not, if I heard it in the mall, I would, I would hate it instantly because it's, (laughs) 
I don't know. It's like a showy, look at me, look at me kind of song instead of a come sing along with me song. And Christmas music, holiday music should be the latter, in my opinion. I'm, I'm more forgiving on that because I, partly because what interests me, one of the things that interests me about Christmas music is the degree to which so much of it is kind of an extension of, an extension of celebrity. I mean, it's one of the things, and so often that what makes this song, a given song go or a reason for it to exist is celebrity or famous singer A is singing it. And, 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 and historically, a lot of the times, like when we go back to the 50s and 60s, you know, when Perry Como does a Christmas record, when Steve Lawrence Needy Gourmet do a Christmas record, it was a way of signaling, hey, we're just like you, and we love Christmas too. And so, celebrity was all is always in my mind intertwined with Christmas. And though my favorite Christmas songs are singable too, that I I give some slack where the um, where the song as an extension of celebrity feels like its driver. It's not her celebrity I'm objecting to. I just don't think it's a very good song. Yeah. Now, there is where I come in. And, and I have to say, I tend to root for Kelly Clarkson, not in the sense that I care a lot or, or that I listen to her records, but, you know, I hope for the best for her. I think being the very first American Idol winner was probably really hard. And I think, you know, when she was... The you know, and she fought back almost right away against the really brutal terms of the management contract that contestants were forced to sign to be on the show. And so, like, she made the first record uh, as a uh, under 19 management, and immediately sued to get off the uh, get out of that contract because it was such a such a bad contract for the artist. And for her, it was a good choice because. Like while prepping for this, I went back and listened to that record, and they were selling a voice, and they were selling a concept that basically this show was 14 weeks of uh, marketing for whoever came out at the end, because she could have been absolutely anybody based on the material in that record and the song choices that were were made for her. So all that's difficult, and you know, and then she went on to. As she, you know, stayed stayed in in the business and continued singing, points where she had to deal with people, people making crack, uh, people being unfair about her weight, and the challenge of being a pop singer when newer and younger pop singers kept coming. So all those are things that make me want to be, make me hope for good things from Kelly Clarkson. But this record wasn't it for me. First off. The nods, the kind of the nod to 60s pop updated felt to me very, I kept thinking Little Shop of Horrors, the Broadway show, Mm. in that it was camp, but camp without any edge. And so it, it, so, so it it felt banal to me. And, and then, and I had an issue with canceled too, that I felt like, I, you know, my assumption is, is that the reason it's the first track out is because the word canceled has, a you know, has currency right now. But I also don't think you can take 
the idea of someone being canceled and cancel culture, which right now carries a, is first off tied to a lot of important issues and has really profound repercussions uh, for people who are canceled. And then to just sort of casually throw it into a, a Christmas breakup song. That Very much agree. Yes. I, I, I am of the opinion that a lot of what people call cancel culture is accountability. Um, I mean, I know that for people who have experienced it, maybe, maybe it's different. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure it's something to be so flippant about. And if you if it were a song calling out the people who claim that Christmas is canceled because we say happy holidays now to be inclusive of people who have other holiday traditions, that would be a great Christmas song. And I think she could sing the fuck out of it. Am uh, I allowed to uh, yes, I think she are. could sing the heck out of it. Um, that's good, because I will. Um, <laughs> especially as a white woman who's come from a... Doesn't she sort of have a country fan base or like a pop fan Had. base? She's, Had. She's early on. They, I think they early on tried to sort of semi-position her towards country, but I, I think her fan base has kind of has has. There's a point where I think it ha wasn't that narrowly nailed down. Gotcha, but I mean she's she's popular with white people. She has a talk show. Um, like that would be, I would love to see her aim for that and hit it. But this is just kind of, they shot the arrow and just kind of went. Woof. Yeah. I also <laughs> have to say, and partly I was thinking about this after, you know, listening to this next to Underneath the Tree, which was her, uh, her biggest Christmas song. And we're going to get to that in a second. But I was also thinking you talked about how hard it was to keep track of lines. And I was struck at some lines by how little musicality there is in the, uh, in some of these, in some of the lines in here that there were a number of times where they were a lot of single syllable words that she was asked to hold or not hold at odd lengths. And it all felt oddly sort of stiff and, which is not something I find in her music. And so I, I was just kind of struck that this was an, an idea I hoped was going to be better than it was. Um, when, I put this, when I put this on the rundown, I was thinking, well, this will be of interest. And it's, it is of interest, but more because it doesn't work than because it does. To me, when I hear it, it sounds like very much like a self-conscious follow-up to uh, Underneath the Tree, which is one of the contemporary songs that flirts with joining the Christmas canon, um, that it, it sold well in first years, and it's getting more and more play uh, on, on like Christmas radio stations. And, and it also follows, very much follows up in the mode of 
uh, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, to a degree that many people have thought it was essentially the same song. I'll ask you about that, because I don't hear that, though it very clearly goes for the same kind of 60s girl group Phil Spector production. That seems to me like a more effective thing than they achieve on um, uh, Christmas Isn't Cancelled. But um, where are you with Underneath the Tree? Any, if feel any more charity to that one? I, I just like it less than Christmas <laughs> Isn't Cancelled. Um, I don't think it's the same song as All I Want for Christmas is You, but it's definitely aiming for it. Like, you can... You have to send me that YouTube video of the guy who thinks, who breaks it down um, that they're the same song, because I'd like to hear that argument. Yeah. Um, like, you can hear the production, the pre-production meeting where they were like, all right, well, let's just, we can take Mariah's prize. But, like, nobody's going to do that. Mariah wrote a song that just, I don't know how she did it. Nobody knows how she did it. It was, she's written many brilliant, brilliant songs, but that, I just, I'll, I'll stand for Mariah and for that, all I want for Christmas is you. Yeah. Any day. Um, underneath the tree isn't it. And I'm, I really, I'm sorry to be so negative. I try to love, you know, um, contemporary music and there is a lot of great contemporary music, but I do at least remember some of the hooks and some of the music from Christmas isn't canceled, but underneath the tree just washed in and out of my mind. Um, hmm. All right. I am, I, I am far more charitable toward underneath the tree. Um, better song. I, yes. I, I actually, I enjoy this song when this one comes on. I don't, I, I don't need it to come on on a regular basis, but every time it comes on, I'm there. Um, I find First, I mean, I it, but it also it does a lot of the same things. I mean, you're right that it, you can hear, you can hear the effort and people thinking that the, that let's you know Mariah Carey had a hit with "All I Want for Christmas Is You" and girl group. Let's see what we've got. Um, yeah. And I like the enthusiasm. Uh, I and I like the commitment to the song. That it is that there's none uh, that. Like I said, there's sort of a campy, coy quality to the um, Christmas isn't canceled, and I don't get any of that. This feels as 100% committed to the idea of all I want for Christmas. Basically, you're all I want for Christmas underneath the tree. You're the only Christmas gift I need. Uh, you know, she sounds 100% behind that idea, and so I'm, I'm along with it. There's no question. It follows really closely, even just down to concept. All I want for Christmas is you. But there's a real long tradition of that. I mean, you go back, um, what is it? Uh, Please Come Home for Christmas mm -hmm. uh, was, I want to say, 46 or 47. And it was absolutely and deliberately written to try to hit the exact same emotional resonance of White Christmas. And yeah. so... This, you know, this idea that we're going to follow up on the previous Christmas hit, that's, say, there, that we've got a very long tradition of that. So I, I, I can't hold that against her. If this becomes a bigger, uh, a, a successful song, I will be fine with it. If it becomes a regular part of our Christmas 
you know, the sort of the Christmas canon. I'm fine with that, and it seems valid. In the sense, you're right that it is. All my recollection of it is entirely sort of sonic, um, and and I got to say, I like having it. Her voice is big enough to go banging with the wall of sound that producer Greg Kirsten created for it. Um, I remember the sound of it far more than I remember individual lines. Yep, bingo. I yep. couldn't tell you the lyric from it. Nope. Now, neither me. I'm, I, I'm with you on that. So it's, you know, it feels far more like, like, a, like a musical experience, um, and, which is kind of what, you know, a little bit what I, I found a YouTube video that Alexander was referring to where someone tries to make the case that they're the same song and essentially what he's doing is mashing it up and just running part of one song into part of the other. And you can hear them side by side and it tells me they're in the same key and same tempo. And I'm good with all, and I, I follow all that. And, but it really does. I thought hearing them, hearing them flow together this way made me, made it clearer that they're not the same song, uh, that they take melodic, melodic moves or chord moves that are not the same, but you're, you know, I trust the musician to have a, have a better ear for that than me. So. I, I want to do some like side to side listens and I want to check out that video cause I, I was listening for it and I don't think they're the same song, but there are definitely some sort of, uh, I don't know. This is, I want to smack myself for saying this like tiny melodic quotes. There are just bits within it where I'm like, huh, I know exactly what you're referring to. Did you do it on purpose or did you, was it a subconscious steal? Um, Cause sometimes it's homage and sometimes it's deliberate. I have, I, I once wrote a poem that I was very proud of. And then months later realized that I had quite accidentally plagiarized a poem that I loved. Like, uh, and then I was cast down. Um, so it does happen. Um, I think, so please come home for Christmas and white Christmas are obviously, I mean, they bring me close to tears, if not actually to tears almost every time I hear them. Mariah's All I Want for Christmas really fills me more with glee. And I don't know if I believe that Mariah actually only wants for Christmas the you in the song. Like she yes. kind of, She's toying with you a little bit, and I like that. Yeah. Kelly in Underneath the Tree, I'm, I'm going to put myself on first name basis with both of these women, which is cheeky of me. Um, she's trying so hard, and she wants it so badly that it's a little bit, like you don't get the lyrics, and it's a little bit like, it's really endearing, but it's like being pummeled by a whole lot of Labrador puppies. Like it's loving and <laughs> very overwhelming and it's very cute but it's kind of too much and i say this as someone who's had labradors for 20 years i think that's i think that's a very apt analogy i think i i i'm glad when i hear it on the radio and during the christmas season it's one of the songs when it comes up i'm fine with it but it's not one of the songs that i will listen to other times uh, I mean, there are Christmas songs I will go back to at other times and that have different charms. One day, everything changed, you all I need. 
So first off, Dan, what made you want to do family-friendly music? I uh, Well, my daughter was born 27 years ago, and I wanted to have a shared musical experience with her. And when I went to this, and I, I just imagined going to the record store that there would be racks and racks of um, of albums that would be sort of the updated version of the Folkways records that I grew up with. In other words, the Lead Belly, Ella Jenkins, Pete Seeger, you know, that there would be the, the, the modern day uh, example of all that. And um, what I saw was that it, for the most part, it was kind of a corporate commercial landscape. I mean, there's always been great stuff, but I didn't see what I was looking for. I didn't see the sound that I heard in my head. And so... I thought maybe all ages music isn't really possible. You know, there was, and there was a lot of children's music, particular to the experiences of children, but I thought maybe all ages music isn't possible and, and let me try and make some. And it was really just to update Folkways records, you know, the, the, you know, the, the kind that I had grown up with. And, um, and I made a solo record at that time. No one cared about the solo record, but everybody wanted more copies of this cassette that I had made called Rocket Ship Beach. And, I decided I would leave pop music once and for all and um, throw myself into this all-ages sphere. And, um, and I've been there ever since. <laughs> <laughs> would you have... Could you imagine having done all-ages uh, music when you were still in the band, when you were, like, before you had a daughter? Absolutely not. No, young people were invisible to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> never crossed my mind ever which is to say that um you know god's imagination is so much better than my own <laughs> <laughs> you know one of, the, one of the things i wonder i often think about these days and we're we're around the same age and i think about like my my parents when when they became parents they for the most part put down their music and that, and to my 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 general feeling was that there was a is that for generations there came a point where music really was thought of as something you do while you're young and then you move on and and that didn't mean my parents didn't still like music but it was you know something in the background at best and they were fine when the radio was on or in the car but. It wasn't something they sought out anymore, and it wasn't something they wanted to sh were looking to share with us or looking to keep alive as a meaningful part of their lives. And my feeling has been, and you may have some take on this, that starting with the, the Woodstock generation is really kind of the first generation that never felt the need uh, to put down their music as they grew older or the music continued to feed them as they grew older and it was such a part of their identity that they didn't put it down when they became when they became parents how does any of that strike you 
Absolutely. I think that's, I think that's definitely the case. Um, I, I know for my generation, the idea of a shared experience was, was, cru- was crucial. And w- but what I was seeing around the neighborhood um, was that people were, were pulling out their Beatles records and they would play. And, and who doesn't love the Beatles? You know, that's going to work for any, for anybody. But, but there are so many themes of romantic love in the Beatles songs that it felt like there was a missed opportunity in that too. Cause you're eventually you're going to get to the Beatles, you know, for, for most folks, you'll, you'll get there for, at least for a few minutes. But, but it seemed like when, when people are young, you know, the lead, the, the value of the lead belly music for children was that he really saw that as an opportunity to give, um, give young people a window into a world that they might not otherwise see and that was the way it was for me. And so I, I felt like all ages music could include a lot of themes that could really help shape the view that someone might have of the world. It, not necessarily, the interest was never children's music that was particular to the experiences of children. That was never my interest. But, but to make this all ages music that could help young people see a world and also imagine a new world. You know, I think that's that's really important. And to imagine themselves in that world making music. You know, when I listen to Lead Belly, I can picture him in my kitchen and I can picture myself standing right next to him and watching, you know, and eventually doing that same thing. So that's the the spirit that that um, that I wanted to to try and pass on. And how much those how many of those impulses were driven by the fact that you were a dad? Um, I, I was thinking about all of it because I was a dad. And if I hadn't been a dad, I wouldn't be thinking about any of it. (laughs) (laughs) And and I was also terrified that parenthood was, was, was going to be something that would, um, I was, for, for me, it was something I was afraid that it was going to be, um, I'm trying to think of a better word than boring, but, but honestly, that was the word, you know, and, 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 and for me, boring would be a life without music making. And so we, you know, just friends and I started making music in the living room, kids crawling around and it became, you know, it became a social thing. And, and I think to everyone's benefit. Right. I, I tell you, part of the reason I ask is because some of these questions are questions I've been thinking about. And for instance, I've made my daughter a, uh, about a, now it's about a ten-hour playlist in the car of music by women, mm. in part because and, and it's you know she should know, and but also songs that I songs that I could could listen to repeatedly so that it could would be at some level shared. But I wanted to make sure that she heard both beautiful voices and that she heard Patti Smith and that she heard Kate Bush and she heard women for who were making extreme choices with their voices and that she didn't grow up with the idea that uh, that girls have to sound pretty and that they didn't have to sound melodic that there is a there's a world of choices out there for you and that artists make those choices that artists don't naturally sound one way or the other it's a decision you make and that I wanted her to know how many choices were available to her and, and and like you, I have the one thing I was a little dodgy on is she's going to get to romantic love soon enough, and our culture is so aimed 
at romantic love and getting people to couple up that I didn't need to get there any quicker than, than necessary. <laughs> and, and that doesn't mean there's not a ton of love songs in this, but it is like when I, particularly when I, when I sort of think about what TV she watches more so than the music, it's like I try to make sure we don't get to kids, you know, kids having to, th kids thinking about romantic love any faster than necessary. Yeah. 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 It's, I, I think as parents, there's so many, you, you really do get to make a lot of decisions and you don't have to just jump in the stream of, of mainstream culture and, and let it take you where it's going to take you. I think there's so many opportunities to share um, some of the things that we grew up with, some of the, um, and some of, and to present some ideas that might be counter to the current narrative or the the current cultural movement. Um, and I think that's empowering for young people too to know that they don't have to go down that that path one hundred percent. Right. Now, you all now. One of the reasons we're talking is because you made a Christmas record, uh, Christmas in Concord, in <laughs> around 2012, 2013. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this answer might be obvious, but why make a Christmas record? Well, we're actually, we're both from New Hampshire. I'm from Concord and Claudia's from Manchester, which is amazing to even think about. And um, that was one of the first reasons that I knew that we were meant to be together in life. <laughs> I mean, come on, what are the chances? Um, but I grew up, I grew up singing, um, <clears throat> excuse me, every year we would, there would be a Christmas party at a, a family's house and my music teacher, Mr. Anderson would be at the piano. They would hand out the same little songbooks and we would sing the you know, the same 12 songs. And it was always a great experience. And so Christmas in Concord was meant to reflect that experience. So, you know, we just we picked out, uh, um, you know, Deck the Halls. Um, I can't even remember the other ones that are on it, but uh, tried to pick out the ones that, that we were singing then. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about it is that We've done holiday shows, Claudia and I and our friend Pauline Jean, who introduced the two of us, have done a number of holiday shows, but to try and make the 21st century multicultural mm -hmm. version of that. And that's been a really, really exciting. To, so it's not Christmas, it's, it's a holiday experience. And um, taking, that, taking the idea of the community sing-along, but going into the 21st century with it. That glorious song of old From angels bending near the earth To touch their harps of gold Peace on earth, goodwill to men From heaven's all-gracious King Claudia, what's your, uh, what's your background with Christmas music? 
Um, well, I have a pretty extensive background with Christmas music. I was raised in a Baptist church, and um, every year around the holidays, we'd have a Christmas cantata, which was one of my favorite times of the year. I would see the adults singing. They wore their robes. They sang. It was beautiful harmonies. And then the children had a, a choir as well. And so we were singing all kinds of holiday tunes. It, uh, pretty extensive. And also at home as well. We loved singing carols at the house. Um, yeah. So and I've been doing it ever since. That, that's interesting that in both, both of your cases, that when I ask about Christmas music, it's entirely about the singing. It's not about and about about that experience far more than songs that you heard or songs mm. that you loved. Um, mm -hmm. Is I, I was just the first way you think about Christmas music. Are there Christmas records that send out in your mind, or is sort of the is this is this experience of singing with others so much bigger that the other stuff kind of falls to the wayside? Hmm. Wow. You know, I, I think you're right. For me, it's really, I, I can't even tell you a record off the top of my head, to be honest. It's, it's more about the memory and the experience of social music making with folks around this particular time of year where you're just surrounded by love and acceptance and um, light. And so I just really think back to those moments and just how emotional that was too as a child to be in that space with young folks and older folks too, just singing these songs and lifting our voices together. So it's really the experience for me. And, and but I, I, you know, one thing is that we do go pretty hard on Christmas music when, the yeah. end, <laughs> when the end of November rolls around. I mean, we, we really switch gears it and it's pretty much a hundred percent. Can't go wrong with some Nat King Cole around that time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there really is a lot of it, and a lot of the, you know, the soul, soul Chris James yeah, Brown Christmas that's right. music. That's right. <laughs> Otis, um, and the Aguinaldos from Puerto Rico. I think uh, Ramito's Christmas music is is always a part of that mm -hmm. as well. Those are that's some exciting Christmas music. But yeah, we do. <laughs> we play a lot. <laughs> Who are the ones? Can you spell me spell that for me so I can look it up? Yeah, it's R A M I T O, and the this the 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 genre is called Aguinaldos A G U I A G N A L D O. Okay. Yeah, and it's it's Puerto Rican Christmas music, and it's um, it's very very joyful. It's um it's sort of the seasonal branch of the Hibaro uh, music of the of the mountains of Puerto Rico. And um, so, you know, neither one of us is 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 fluent in Spanish, but the just the joy in the music mm -hmm. and the celebration is 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 so it's through the roof. Y mi novia murió en la noche buena y en horrible pena he quedado yo. Pero Dios me la llevó en eterno vuelo, en mí no hay consuelo, me asedia el dolor. Cuiden de mi amor, Dios mío, ángeles del cielo, pero cuiden de mi amor, ángeles del cielo. One of the things I've been thinking about while you've been talking and how often we've kind of talked 
in just a short conversation about sort of the social experience. Mm. And and I would imagine as someone who was into the Smithsonian folkways stuff, you'd probably have this would twig for you, but I was thinking about the uh, Harry Smith's anthology of American uh, of, of American music, the folk uh, folk music collection, and the second set, which he titled "Social Music," mm-hmm. and that was you know music that was meant to bring people together, and that in there was spirituals, um, and and dance music, things like Cajun. I think there's some versions of Cajun music in there. Yeah. But it also seems like it, the natural the natural extension of that Christmas music is meant it really makes sense being thought of in, in that in that way as a form of music that people that brings people together. Absolutely. I'd agree. It, Go ahead. It's it seems like that's the um that's you know, and that's when when we're talking about our holiday show. That's always the part that we emphasize is is that the whole you know from beginning to end. These are songs that we're all going to sing together, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know that. I guess we're doing it once this this season out in Kansas, but I think that it's going to be something we're going to bring to our our neighborhood as well, just because it's a it's a stronger hook than saying in the middle of summer, we're going to have a party and we're all going to sing. And, you know, you have to do a little bit of explaining behind that, even though everyone comes to that. But I think in, in, the, in the holiday season, you have to do much less explaining because it's, it's still, at least in, in maybe in distant memory, it's still a part of the, the seasonal experience. Mm-hmm. And when you think about, you know, carolers, you never had one mm. single caroler ringing your doorbell it was the group. It was harmony. Even if they were singing in unison, mm-hmm. it usually involved more than one person. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> At this point, when you did songs like, for instance, you did "Deck the Halls" on the uh, on the uh, Christmas in Concord. Was there someone whose version kind of was the one that you used as a model for where to go with that? No, those those songs were just so were so were so firmly in my head from these Christmas parties I grew up with that that it, it was actually a real blessing because so often we do lean on recorded versions of songs and it's just nice to know that there are there are certain tunes that are just part of your your wiring and you can pull them up and you know you know you know how you want them to sound. With bells of holly, tis a season to be jolly. Uh, on there, there's also uh, I'm counting the days until Christmas. Is that your song? Yeah, that's a, well. That's a song that I um, that I wrote with um, Susan Laurie Parks, and um, so it was just it, the idea would was going to be that eventually we'd 
you know, along the way, I would always add to, uh, I would add to this Christmas in Concord and it would just grow by a couple songs a year. Didn't really work out that way, but we wrote, we wrote that one. What challenges did you face when you were trying to write a Christmas song? Um, I, I mean, I don't think, I don't remember the challenges other than just, I think that, well, I think the writing on Christmas songs in general, if we think about the ones that have lasted for more than a few generations, um, the writing is so tight. You know, you can't just knock something out that's got a few flawed lines in it. Every word has to be perfect. So the, the bar is just so high as far as the craft of songwriting around Christmas songs. So I think that's the challenge is to, is to be free and mentally free enough to be able to write without being in your head the whole time, but also to try and in the rewriting of things to try and get to that level of, uh, you know, you want it to be concise. You want it to be as, as streamlined and artful as possible. So I think that's the, that's the challenge. The bar is high. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would also imagine that the experience of, of writing songs for a family audience, I mean, I know you were that, that, that would also probably force you to be fairly economical and precise in your language because you can't count on on all on all ages and sort of intellectual levels to be able to make sort of big jumps with you you need to you I imagine you have to walk your audience through yeah for sure i feel like the african american tra uh, folk traditions around christmas have better examples of songs something like rise up shepherd is a is a, an example of a song if we were to try and write one today maybe we will mm -hmm. um we would use that as a starting point you know because that's that's much more of a song that works for our audience mm -hmm. um there's much more call and response in it and the but the message is strong right i'll be home for christmas I'm counting the days I'll be home for Christmas I'm counting the days Presents for everyone I'm homeward bound Folks will be happy when I come into town It'll be so good to be back around I'm counting the days I'll be home for Christmas. I'm counting now, the days. When you perform a song, do you perform knowing that all ages and particularly kids are going to be singing along with you? Yeah, I would say our writing, we really try to make the music as accessible as possible. So it's really important to have really invitational choruses, hooks, melody lines. So um, I wouldn't say easy, but but it's an it's a invitational and non-threatening way to find your way into the music. Um, so yeah, I would say we, we really, that's our hope is that it's, it's about the engagement. We have no interest in just being on a stage and performing for everybody, but how can we make this a, a community 
experience. Does that affect the way you sing? Um, I wouldn't say it affects the way that I sing. I, I think I'm, I'm myself when I'm on the stage, I'm, I'm, I'm singing from a, you know, a, a place of depth and I'm, I want folks to feel that and, and experience that, but I think it's also important for folks to know. I think as a society, we've been we've become so conditioned and focused on um, uh, consuming music more than making music, mm -hmm. um, and so how do we bring that back in terms of? finding comfort in your voice. For the longest, I did a lot of music together classes, working with families and kids. And I learned that early on, you know, I was, I was trained, I went to Berklee College of Music. And sometimes when I was singing, I would notice that folks would not sing. Because, <laughs> and then when I would talk to parents after it, I'd say, you know, what's the deal? You know, I know you know these songs. And they're like, oh, but your voice is just so angelic and beautiful and we just want to listen to it and so you know it gave me an opportunity too to to really invite parents and not just parents everybody to find your voice and that to your child to to whoever's hearing you in the house all the time that is the most beautiful voice and it's not about trying to um, I think sometimes we are scarred by experiences we've had mm. in school. It might have been that second grade teacher that says, you don't, you don't sound good, you sound like a frog, you're tone deaf. Whatever it is, sometimes we carry that stuff with us. So I think our shows are really a, a place where we invite people to put, leave the baggage at the door. We're going to sing together. We're going to find our voices together. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so part of what made me think about that was listening to your version of Joy to the World on Christmas in Concord, because that is, a, I, I like that version a lot, but you don't oversell the joy. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I wondered if part of it is knowing that you are going, is knowing that you're going to have another 20, 40, 100 voices all of whom are just ready to go with joy, joy all the way. And, and that, they're that there will be plenty of joy in that version when it's performed live. And what they kind of what they need to hear is the, is the core thought that they're going to end up spiraling out of in whatever key they choose to. Mm. Man, I wish I could say I thought about it that hard. I mean, honestly, I was probably doing my very best to sing it. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm just super limited. I'm just so enjoyed. That's what I. That's why I like singing with Claudius because she really can truly sing circles around me, and it and it and it. It's like playing tennis with someone who's a lot better than you, it does make you, you know, you play better. So I know I sing better when I'm with Claudia. Mm -hmm. And Dan just has one of those voices that truly, I feel like it's that, it's it's an invitational voice. You hear Dan sing and you feel, oh, I can sing along I, with Dan. I can I, do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior.
So one thing I thought interesting on your the song choices on Christmas in Concord that they largely leaned on songs that are expressions of faith, and that I don't think Santa's anywhere on that on that EP or on that album. Was that a spiritual choice or a financial choice based on what's in public domain? Um, you know, an aesthetic choice or which? It was really based on the little booklet that they would give us every year at this at this particular party. So it was it was I mean, I'm going to guess that it was probably from the 50s, but it really was the old school Christmas carol canon. And so that's that was it. Um, and, I'm, you know, my faith wasn't as wasn't strong at that point when we when that record was made. It's strong now. And so now I, I, I really appreciate the um, those choices that were made. Um, and I and that's really what, you know, that's what I love. And I think we both love about Christmas is the, it, you know, the Christ in Christmas as opposed to the the presence and, and you know, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I'm grateful that those choices were made. <laughs> um, do you when you're working on records, do you think about uh Music that's in public domain, music you know, versus songs that you're going to have to at some, you're going to have to license. Does that affect decisions? Yeah, for the for the Dan Zanes and Friends record, we would have a limit of you know five five songs that we would maybe or maybe three, maybe less. Where third party publish, you know, where we would you know because it it becomes an economic decision at one point, but also there's you know there's a ton of great songs in the public domain. And um, I felt like part of part of my job and part of our job was to find, I mean, not on the new record, but, you know, part of our job in general is to bring old songs forward. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, by old songs, we're going back, uh, you know, we're going back at least, you know, beyond the copyright, um, the, the limitations, so that a lot of the tunes are, even if they did have a... a, a a known songwriter, like a song like Erie Canal, you know, it was long ago. It was far enough back that it's in the public domain. So, but it's also inspired us to to write because we find that there's been tremendous, <coughs> mm. you know, in, in current events in the last you know couple of years, and really thinking about the climate of the nation and what we want to speak to, and sometimes looking for these songs that don't exist, that really, um, the times inspired us to do more writing. Right. So there's that as well. Yeah. I, I was actually just about to ask, on your most recent album, Let Love Be Your Guide, that I assume you wrote most of that, if not all of it? Yeah, the entire, the entire album are original songs that we wrote. Have you been on a trend toward writing more of your own material? I would say yes. Um, I think, again, with so before this, we, we created America's very first sensory-friendly comic folk, op- folk opera, which was commissioned by the Kennedy Center. And so that was also all originals. We, we loved it. We enjoyed that experience. Um, and, you know, I think as artists, too, it's we want to do more songwriting. And I think oftentimes when there's stuff happening in the world, there's there's content to write, there's stuff to write about. So it inspires you in a way that um, sometimes I don't feel necessarily as inspired if there's not as much going on. I think we did a lot of our writing in this in this last couple of years because there was just so much to address 
and to speak to. And again, you know, when you look and sometimes you're trying to find the words to share and you can't find them, it, it pushes you to get that pen and paper out and to write it yourself. this time of playing folk music and these like traditional songs how does that experience affect the way you write to address contemporary situations and contemporary uh issues yeah that it's a that's a great question and the answer is is um is easy for us because what what we did last march uh when the national state of emergency was declared was we decided it was, I mean, the conversation lasted three minutes, probably. We said, let's, why don't we do a, a social isolation song series and we'll put out a song, a video of a song a day until this pandemic is over. And we went for 200 consecutive days. Mm-hmm. And so the first, I don't know, 60, 70 days, we were just doing the songs that we know, you know, we think of some, you know, maybe it would be an Ian and Sylvia song, maybe a Fats Waller song, you know, um, some of the West Indian folk music, some of the, you know, just like drawing on a lot of songs that we're, that, that were just a part of who we are. So by the time things really started heating up after George Floyd was murdered, we were we were so connected to those forms, you know, to that kind of writing and those kinds of songs that when we started needing to write new songs, we were, you know, that was just such a part of our, our everyday experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all at the front of our brains mm-hmm. that we were writing in those kind of forms. You know, it was mm-hmm. it, 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 it was it, it was simple. And it was also the pressure of time because we were putting out a new song every day. So there wasn't a, let me sit on this for two weeks right. and see how, so you didn't have time to be stuck in your head. It was let those, let it flow and let's put it out there. And then maybe we can come back and fine tune if needed. But I think that was a really great challenge for us too. It really pushed us to really express what was on our hearts. Did it also make it easier for you to be in some ways less precious about a song to decide we got what we were going for, that let's move on? Absolutely. Absolutely. There was, we, I think a lot of artists can speak to having a record written out, but it takes 10 years to put it out because you're trying to get it just right. (laughs) So this was, um, you didn't have time to think like that. And I, I loved that push because I think there's greatness in all of us that we oftentimes question and want to package it just perfectly. But sometimes that's not what it calls for. It's, it calls to the here and now. Let's speak to what's happening and what's on our hearts today. So that's what we did. And, and it, it did push us. It was a great way to be pushed. I'll say that. It was fabulous. <laughs> Do you think about these new songs as being in the folk tradition? 
Yeah, I think so. But but we when um, we started saying to people now that we play electric folk music because I think when we say we're you know folk musicians, it, it conjures up a certain type of thought. But I think you know we really took a lot of our cues from people like uh, Rodrigue Millien or the um, uh, Trio Select with uh, Coupe Cloué from Haiti. Mm-hmm. And these were these were really electric folk musicians that were actually Trio Select, mm-hmm. I found out from Claudia's dad, they rehearsed right across the street from him in, in Haiti. And so in the evenings when everyone was coming home from work, he would see this little electric trio rehearsing out front. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd be, you know, having their drinks and playing their tunes. Ah, and, yeah. and it's such a social, it's yeah. such social music, but it's not in any way, there's nothing precious about it, mm-hmm. but it's, but it's, a, but it's also electric and that's alive. Take, takes it to some other mm-hmm. place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll tell you part of the reason I asked that question was, Man, I have a thought, and I it, I either sort of got it from Utah Phillips or Ani DeFranco. But when we were, t- I remember, I think it was Ani DeFranco. We were talking about folk music, and the idea that folk music is talking about what's happening right now without any concern for the future. Mm-hmm. You know that so many songs are made with the premise of how's this going to how's this going to age, mm-hmm. and 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 i and kind of the thought that somehow we landed on was that you know that folk music doesn't worry about that to, doesn't worry about where this is going to end up this is about talking to people now about what we're dealing with now and this thought might well hold up and this song might well hold up in 10 years and this song might be lucky if it holds up in 2 years you know, mm-hmm. but that's not the concern. The concern is the now. And that lets, and, and again, a kind of a social expression lets us talk together through music about where we're at. Do, how does that work for you as, as somebody who's thought about folk music? That makes a lot of sense. You know, one thing that we, we did, we did want to do when we made the record was um, we wanted to these songs came out of a certain time. They came, they came out of a pandemic era, but, but we also want, we did want to make a record that would have some meaning for people in, uh, you know, years from now. And, but I think that the songs were written with the, with the intention that we could speak to the events of the day in terms, in general terms or in universal terms that would still apply. Because I think, I mean, nobody wants their music. I mean, no, I'll speak. For, I can't speak for everybody, but it, it would be nice to not have music be dated or to, you know, for people to, you know, you want people to say, well, I lived through it. I don't need to hear somebody's <laughs> record about it, you know. Right. And I don't think, but I don't think that's where that's where we came from. We really tried to make a record about the joy of community, um, mm-hmm. about freedom. Mm-hmm universal themes um but it certainly was uh, born in a time and place sure when you're when you're writing do you think about about whether a song is going to be something that kids can sing with you yeah yeah i think we do i think we always we we all we want everything to be 
something that people can sing. Mm -hmm. So we definitely go into it with that. You know, we try and have a strong chorus and make it as much like English Music Hall as we possibly <laughs> can. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have the chorus. <laughs> but um, I, I heard somebody said that with the, in the English Music Hall that, um, you know, the, the, the legend of it all was that if you went in with a new song and the audience wasn't singing along, by the end of the second chorus, your song wasn't going to work. You know, it had to be so strong. Something like Henry VIII. I mean, that's all That's all the Herman's Hermits sang was the chorus. They sure. didn't even have the verses. <laughs> and so we do think about that. You know, we want people to be able to sing along. Does thinking that you're going to be playing for a family audience affect the way you write a song and specifically thinking about how it would be different from writing for a rock band. Mm. I think we're writing what we write now, you know, because I think that, well, for example, we just went last night and played for um, a group of men um, who live in a shelter here and they're, you know, they're getting sober, they're living together in a, in a, uh, sort of halfway transitional living and um, and they had a camp out and we were invited to come play at a campfire for them and we could basically we could sing the same songs with these men that we would sing for our audience in Costa Mesa you know our all ages audience in Costa Mesa with a couple a couple little changes here mm -hmm. and there but but basically, we're really committed to this all ages experience, and it's mm -hmm. it, it's it's really served us well. Mm -hmm. And as we're thinking about the the lived experience, even since 2020, you know, our thoughts were a lot of families are under the same roof. You know, it's multi generational. It's no longer the you know kids are over here doing their own music or whatever they're doing. Everyone's listening. We're having conversations around the table. There's so much to address. There's new new words for people like reparations. Maybe that's not a conversation that's been had at the table before. So there are new conversations taking place and we're listening to each other's music. And so our music too, there's a lot of themes in there that also introduce the ideas of these um, deeper dialogues that can take place as well. So almost like planting those seeds so families can engage also in more meaningful conversations about what's happening in our, in our nation, in our world. See how the flags are flying Reparations is a must while the old ways are quickly dying Reparations is a must And the fireworks in the night sky Tomorrow's poison dust Our parades across the nation Ooh, reparations is a must As, since you brought it up, I actually wanted to ask you about reparations or a, is a must. Because I think I was wondering, do you think about your relationship to parents, particularly when you're singing a when you, when you're singing that song specifically, but when you're singing songs about social justice? Or another way to ask the question is, that, 
do you think about where what your relationship is, what your place is in the relationship with parents and their children when you are going to introduce a thought into a song that for this audience? Yeah, we do. Um, we do. And then and and we also um, feel a certain uh desire or responsibility or whatever whatever it may be to 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 be to be like artists you know so if something's on our hearts we're gonna you know we we're gonna want to share it and Mm -hmm. and not be as concerned with who's gonna dig it and who isn't um as you know if we saw ourselves strictly as family music performers we might you know we might make different decisions but we don't we think of ourselves as artists that that really are emotionally committed to the family audience but we hear a lot from from parents saying you know I want to raise anti-racist children you know how do how do we do this Mm -hmm. and um you know a lot of people aren't going to come to that party and, and not, they may not want to take the time to have a conversation about reparations, but for those who want to, mm-hmm. here's something to help, right. you know, here's, here's a sing-along mm-hmm. song. And, and if you, you know, if your family's into Dan and Claudia Zanes, you know, what's on our minds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're making that real clear. Mm-hmm. And music is just such a wonderful gateway and entry point to these conversations. Sure. I remember kids singing lyrics that I didn't even understand until I got a little older and could understand what I was really singing about. So this is really an opportunity for families to go as deep or as not as deep as they feel is appropriate for, yeah. for themselves. Do you think about, or walk me through the thought process of how you adapt social issues to your to your, to an, a family audience? Because I would imagine it's got to be a complicated dance to think through something that will both engage a parent, but still be accessible for a child. C- could you take a song and tell me sort of how you figured out how to nuance the thought mm-hmm. you wanted to get across? and figure out how to navigate that audience. Let Love Be Your Guide would be a good example of that, I think. Um, So that was written on the day of John Lewis's funeral. Mm -hmm. So we're watching the funeral on TV, and then there's the op-ed that he wrote for the Times that he arranged to have published on the day of his funeral, which was incredible. Mm -hmm. Talk about showbiz, you know. (laughs) So we're watching the funeral, we're hearing about him and his life and his legacy, and then we're reading the piece in which he, he really tried to pass on, you know, in a few short paragraphs, pass on to the next generation what he had learned in his lifetime of nonviolent of nonviolence, you know, or what he called love in action. Mm-hmm. And so um, that felt to us like something you know, to break it down to just this simple idea of let love be your guide, you know, was such a, you know, in so many ways, so profound, you know, because if you, and also you think about the, you know, where we were at as a people in 2020. And so let love be your guide was probably one of the most progressive sentiments that you could offer it in that time, because Mm -hmm. it was such a time and I'm speaking as a white person who was judge, in judgment of a lot of other white people at that time, you know. I, was, I, I got caught up in that, too, you know. And, um, and so I think 
what he was asking of us was something that really pertained to a moment and it pertained absolutely to racial justice, but it was also just such a fundamental life lesson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that song, you know, wrote it, you know, it was written quickly and, and, and it was written based on his op-ed. But I think in that, we've noticed already that a lot of schools have been able to talk about John Lewis and his legacy, but you can, you don't have to go deep into it. You can, you can, you know, civil, civil rights leader and icon who's, you know, was mm-hmm. voting rights advocate. Yeah. You can, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and nonviolence, you could leave it at that or you could go deeper. Mm-hmm. And so, that's, and, and I would say another example too, is I'm just thinking so there's an instrument we use sometimes in shows where Dan pulls out a jaw harp and he plays it and he talks a little bit about how this instrument was one of the most famous, popular instruments in the days before electricity. And so we talk about what didn't we have in the days before electricity and the kids and you know are saying no video games, no, no radio, no, you know, all the things. And so one of the things that we we put at the end of that too, and just so you know, at that time too, in our country's history, it would have been illegal for the two of us to be married. So that is a, a wonderful thing to just put out there into the sphere to, for, for kids to know this, but also for parents to hear this because we don't go deep, deep into it, but that will also inspire, hopefully, a conversation maybe on the ride home. Why would it have been illegal for Dan and Claudia to be married in this country? What? You know, so um, so things like that. We, we like to plant the seeds. We're, we're never on stage preaching and educating and teaching, but, but we really, for example, our sensory-friendly shows, you know, we are very adamant and very passionate about creating conditions that are welcoming to all. We think about the theater space, we think about public music spaces, and how oftentimes they can be very exclusive for many families. And thinking about neurodiverse audiences and how do we make the music accessible to them, but also how do we make sure that the building is accessible to this family? How do we make sure that the families feel comfortable and and seen in this space, that working with the ushers, making sure things like volume levels and lighting levels and you know no pyrotechnics, nothing that's going to set people off, but like really making sure that it is invitational and welcoming to all people, you know, we, we use the analogy a lot of times of like a wheelchair ramp, you know, you could see a wheelchair ramp outside of a building and it doesn't mean this is only for people in wheelchairs. It means it's more accessible that more people can come and utilize this beautiful space. So more folks are considered. And so that's what we really think about when we're doing our shows as well, is we want the audience to really look like the world that we live in. It's really important that people are, we like to think of theater spaces as being all inclusive and that's oftentimes not. Sadly, it's really not. So those kinds of things we have found that when we open that door wider and we have more neurodiverse audience members coming, families who oftentimes aren't um, able to do things as a family unit, social gatherings and things with their family, it's very challenging. You, when you look out into the audience at, from the stage, I'm telling you, it's one of the most beautiful sights. And I will tell you too, that we have heard from families saying, we, there's, there's a part in the show where we make trains and the kids are going through and looking at this train, you see it, you know, you put the hands on the shoulder in front of you, you see 
that happening, but then you see someone else's hands is on a wheelchair in front of them, or someone else has got a walker and their hands around that person's waist. And I remember we heard from a father who was in tears and he reached out to us and he said, I just want you to know, this was my first time taking my children to a show like this, where they got to see people who look different from them, um, who maybe move differently from them. And it enga we engaged in a really meaningful dialogue on the way home. They were asking me questions about this, Dad, what does this mean? I loved how this girl was dancing and doing it. It was a beautiful conversation. So it's in the things that we say from the stage, sure, but it's also in the things that the kids are picking up within the space as well. Like, how are we making that space invitational to create uh, uh, opportunities to have these kinds of dialogues as well? If there's something I must tell you now, let love be our guide. The longing of the human heart knows how to let love be your guide. Well, I stood among you and I knew, let love be your guide. It was clear what you were here to do. Let love be your guide. Thanks to Alexandra Scott and Dan and Claudia Zanes for the time and the talk. You can find Alexandra, Dan, and Claudia on Facebook. And if you want to tell me something or reach out, you can find me at 12 Songs of Christmas. If you haven't already done so, be a sport and follow, subscribe, or do what you have to do to get 12 songs to show up each week in your podcast feed. If you get them through Apple, a five-star review would be much appreciated. All those things tweak the algorithms and help others find out about what we're doing here. Thanks to AF the Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. In this episode, we heard a number of songs from Dan Zane's Christmas in Concord. Let's revisit it one more time. This is Angels We Have Heard on High. Talk to you next week. Angels we have heard on high Singing sweetly o'er the plains And the mountains in reply Echoing the joyous streets